turn in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 24. It's found on page 885 in your pew Bibles. We are continuing in our series, Unbelievable, based on Tim Keller's Reason for God. Good news, if you are looking for that book, we now have more copies. We have 50 more. They are available in the Welcome Center, and you can grab one. Today, in chapter 24, we are going to see an amazing story. Because we are going to see the resurrected Jesus on the first day of the week walk seven miles with two doubting disciples. And he's going to walk them through the entire Hebrew Old Testament showing how all of it is about Jesus. Perhaps it's one of the greatest three-hour conversations in the history of the world. Wouldn't you like to have a podcast of this sermon? Not mine, but Jesus's. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you take your words and my words and cause our hearts to burn within us as we talk about Jesus from your scripture. In his powerful name we pray. Amen. So, one of the defeater beliefs for the Christian faith is that it requires you to take this book seriously. 
If this is your first time here or your first exposure to Christianity, this is going to seem rather weird that we read from a book over 2,000 years old, that we base our worship on it, that we build our lives around this book. You might think it's full of inspiring stories, perhaps some good teaching, maybe even some great poetry. But, you might think, you can't take this book seriously. And you can't take it seriously because it's historically unreliable and it's culturally regressive. Let's look at those two objections real quick. The stories in the Bible are historically unreliable. What do we mean by that? There are some that would say this is simply a collection of fairy tales. It's legend. This is what Richard Dawkins claims in The God Delusion. This is what Dan Brown puts forth in The Da Vinci Code. That Jesus was only a human teacher, but that the early church wanted to grow their power, so they claimed that he was the eternal Son of God and declared his divinity in 324 or 325. Or this is what the Jesus Seminar would say, that no more than 15 to 20 percent of Jesus' sayings and actions in the Bible can be historically validated. They would say that Jesus came alive in their hearts and so they wished it were true, so they came up with traditions about the empty tombs. The Gospels are not historical. They are a superimposed legend. Or you might object to this book saying that it's culturally regressive, that it's socially out of date. This was made popular by a West Wing episode in the early uh, 2000s and an open letter that was circulating on the internet with sarcastic and humorous and well-written questions about the Old Testament. These were some of my favorites. Christian, when I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord, according to Leviticus 1.9. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. How should I deal with this? Or, I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as stated in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think I could get for her? Or, Leviticus 25.44 states that I may buy slaves from the nations that are around us. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can you clarify? My chief of staff insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or should I call the police? My favorite, perhaps, touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, according to Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? That remains to be seen, even if they wear gloves. I'm going to get in trouble for that. Hopefully there's no Redskins players in here. They're welcome if they are. All are welcome. (laughs) The accusation is what? That Christians pick and choose the verses, the text that they like. You pick out the ones about sexuality, but you ignore the one about raw meat or pork or shellfish. I read the Old Testament and I'm appalled by the rape. I'm appalled by the polygamy. I'm appalled by slavery and the Bible's view of women. Surely you cannot take this book seriously. 
There's two disciples on this road in Luke chapter 24. Cleopas, and some scholars actually think the other unnamed disciple may be Luke, the author of this gospel. Notice in verse 25 that both of them were slow of heart to believe the word of God. And Jesus takes them to scripture. So I'm going to take you to scripture this morning. And I've got two thoughts for you to consider with a lot of subpoints. Number one, there is strong evidence to trust the Bible historically. Luke goes to great length in this gospel account to put forth the notion that this is not legend, that it's not fairy tale, but it is, in fact, historical. Jesus asked the two men in the conversation in verse 17, what are you talking about? And Cleopas says, look, you need to check your Twitter feed. You need to read the newspaper. Have you not heard everything that happened in Jerusalem about this guy named Jesus? You see, Luke is putting forth the notion that there were plenty of eyewitnesses who know about the crucifixion and who are beginning to talk about a possible resurrection. You see, the eyewitness accounts are very important in proving the historicity of the Bible, particularly the Gospels. Let me give you three reasons why eyewitness accounts are important. Number one, the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels are important because they are way too early to be legends. Most of the New Testament books were written anywhere between 15 and 60 years after the death of Jesus. That's way too early and not nearly enough time for legends to spring up. Luke says his sources for the gospel are those who saw and heard what Jesus said and did, and they are still living. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was resurrected and he appeared to over 500 people, and many of them are still living. Go and talk to them. In Philippians 2, Paul quotes a hymn of praise about the deity and the divinity of Jesus. This was written as early as 15 years after the event. Worshipping what? Jesus as God. This is not something that Constantine invented in 325. The second reason why eyewitness accounts are important is eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, they are too counterproductive to be legends. I love this. Who would include the embarrassing details in this chapter in the Gospel of Luke and all of the other ones? For example, as I'm reading Luke chapter 24, I'm thinking, man, these disciples are dense. Like, connect the dots, okay? You've been walking with Jesus, and as they tell Jesus about Jesus, they say, Jesus was what? He was a mighty prophet. He did amazing miracles. They say that he was the Messiah. They said that the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. They hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. They even know about the empty tomb. They even know something's supposed to happen on the third day. And then the tomb is empty. And then the women actually tell them, hey, some angels visit us. And they told us that Jesus is alive, and they still don't get it. At best, the disciples in the Gospels are presented as being dim-witted. And not only are they dim-witted, they come across as uncaring. Jesus, in perhaps two of 
the events of his greatest need, he asks them to stay awake and to pray for him. What do they do? They fall asleep. Or what about when they're arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And they're telling Jesus, hey, if everybody else deserts you, I won't do it. I'm with you to the end until the soldiers come. And then I'm out of here. They come across as cowards. Peter, the er leader of the early church, he commits treason against Jesus. He denies him not once, but three times. And if you were going to make this up, you would not include a detail like verse 24 that women were the first eyewitnesses. Why? Not good, but in the first century, the testimony of women was not even admissible in court. If you were going to make this up, you would not make the first witnesses women. Why would they include details like these? The only reason is that it actually happened. The third reason why eyewitness accounts are important is that they are too detailed to be legends in the Gospels. Richard Bauckham is a world-class historian, scholar, professor at University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he wrote a book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and he was emphasizing this point. He says, even in this story, if you were writing a legend at this time, you would give both of the characters names, not just one, like Cleopas. The Gospels are historical. They're rich in detail. According to Luke chapter 1, he writes an orderly account. There are Gospels all throughout the Gospels in the New Testament. They're crazy to include. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, I've got a beef with the coppersmith. Why? Because the coppersmith was real. My favorite one may be in Mark chapter 15, when Jesus was on the road to Calvary. And he couldn't carry the cross. So Mark 15, 21 says, They grabbed a man named Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why did Alexander and Rufus get in the Bible? The reason is, they're still living. Go ask Rufus. Go ask Alexander. Did your father carry the cross of Jesus? And they will tell you that he did. Well, then you might say, well, they're just making it up, including these details, to sound historical. I'm not an expert in literature, but C.S. Lewis was in mythology and a literary critic. And this is what he says. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is historical reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. What he's saying is if you're going to write a legend, it would be more like Beowulf. It wouldn't be like a modern novel. You see, in Luke's Gospel and in Acts, he records names, dates, cities, and details that you don't include in legends. Colin Hemer, who's a scholar and historian, he chronicled Luke's historical accuracy in Acts, and he identified 84 facts in the last 16 chapters that have been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. These are historical accounts, not legends, concocted by Constantine. And consider this. After the crucifixion, what were the disciples doing? 
They were scared. They were locked in an upper room. And Peter says, I think I'm going back to fishing. (laughs) They had nothing to gain. They weren't sitting up there dreaming up of a legend of how they could profit on the empty tomb. But a few chapters later in Acts, what is Peter doing? He's not fishing. He's preaching the gospel boldly. What happened? He met the resurrected Savior. He met the Messiah. He met the King. And he could do nothing else but proclaim the good news. You see, faith didn't produce facts. But facts produced faith. You can trust the New Testament Gospels because they are too early, too counterproductive, and too detailed to be legends. Now let's turn our attention to the second objection that you cannot trust the Bible because it is culturally regressive. I want to make the case that there is a strong reason to trust the Bible culturally. Two reasons that you can trust the Bible culturally. Number one, the Bible, it doesn't always mean what you think. Look at verse 21. The two men are troubled because they even misunderstood Scripture. They thought Jesus was one particular type of Messiah, but he was so much more. Sometimes the Bible is descriptive and not prescriptive. Let me give you two examples. So, one of the objections about why the Bible is culturally regressive is slavery. When you read about slavery, though, you likely think of the African slave trade. But old world slavery, particularly in the Old Testament, was way more like an indentured servant. When you racked up debts that you couldn't pay, you sold yourself. You weren't kidnapped. It wasn't based on ethnicity, but this was a way to pay off your debts. You wore the same clothes, you earned the same wages, and when you earned enough money, you would usually buy your freedom back. New world slavery is not what the New Testament is talking about. The Bible never condones slavery. You're actually reading it through your own cultural blinders. But what about polygamy? I see all the patriarchs in the Old Testament... And they have a lot of wives. Well, if you read those stories, it never works out very well for them. (laughs) You see, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. There's an Old Testament scholar at Berkeley by the name of Robert Alter who wrote a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And he says that during this time, polygamy was pervasive in ancient culture. And actually what you see in biblical narratives is that polygamy always wreaks havoc in every situation. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. It describes a practice. It does not command it. It shows that polygamy is a bad idea over and over again. Scripture doesn't always mean what you think. That's why I picked one of these quotes on the front of your bulletin. John Owen. It says, In the divine scriptures there are shallows and there are deeps. Shallows where the lamb may wade and the deeps where the elephant may swim. Sometimes you have to work hard to understand what Scripture means. The second reason why I think you can trust the Bible culturally is this, is that the Bible must always be interpreted Christologically. In verse 27, Jesus walks them through the entire Hebrew Old Testament that would have been arranged Genesis through Chronicles. And he shows them it's all about Jesus. 
There is progressive revelation in the Bible. Most Christians don't know how to respond to the West Wing episode, but it's actually quite simple. The coming of Christ changed everything. The coming of Christ changed the way that we worship, but not how we live. Because of Christ, the ceremonial law is repealed. Because of Christ, the church is no longer a nation state imposing civil penalties. Laws in the Old Testament were given for a specific time, for a specific people, for a specific purpose. Some of the laws in the Old Testament were given for practical reasons. You put someone who's touched a dead animal or body outside the camp. Why? To prevent plague. Some of them were theological reasons to teach them that God was holy, that he was set apart, the clean and the unclean laws. Some of the laws in the Old Testament were Christological. They were put in there to point forward to Jesus. Some of them were abrogated and fulfilled in Christ, and some have weight today. Don't be naive when you're interpreting the Bible. So how would we answer some of the West Wing things? Well, one... We don't sacrifice bulls on the altar. Why? Because when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the curtain was torn in two. And it meant that the sacrificial system was now obsolete. We don't sacrifice bulls, goats, or lambs anymore because the quintessential lamb has come and he's been sacrificed. And if you really think about it, it's not going to stink. If you're sacrificing a bull next door, it's going to smell like barbecue. And you're going to be like, let's get some barbecue sauce. (laughs) Second, we don't kill people for violating the Sabbath. Why? Because the church is not a civil government. And second, a better translation of Exodus 35.2 is that you are liable up to death. I don't think really that many people were ever, if at all, put to death in the Old Testament for violating the Sabbath. And what about the footballs? Well, don't you realize that even though they're called pigskins, they're not made out of pig. They're made out of cow. It's leather. So you can touch them. It's okay. But do you also know this, that Jesus Christ declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7. And there's a vision in Acts chapter 10 and 11 that was given to Peter that says, eat. Bacon's great. (laughs) You need to know you can always interpret the Bible Christologically. There's a simple interpretation. Jesus says this in verse 27. He says, everything in the Old Testament is about me. If you think the Bible is about what you must do to earn God's favor, then you don't understand the Bible. And apparently, 59% of us don't understand the Bible. A recent survey showed that nearly 6 out of 10 Americans say that being a Christian It's primarily about living a good life and doing the right thing. Friends, that's not the message of the Bible. Consider Moses, who Jesus mentions in verse 27. Is Moses the hero? Is he simply an example to be brave and to stand up in front of Pharaoh and God will bless you? No. Who's the hero? It's about a God who called a man. It's about a God who sent a lamb. And the blood of that lamb was sprinkled on the doorpost and the angel of death passed over. The ancient Israelites celebrated the lamb, not Moses. And you see, when Jesus is walking along the road with the disciples, he's saying, do you really think 
a fuzzy, cute little woolly lamb would take away your sins before a holy God? You see, I am the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The entire Bible is about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points toward Him. Jesus walks through the law and the prophets and He tells them, I am the rock. I am the I am the well that provides water for your souls. I am the bread of life. I am the manna. I am the altar. I am the sacrifice. I am the great high priest. I am the true prophet. I am the, quintess- the quintessential king. Jesus says everything in the Old Testament is about me. I am the hero. Do you know what the theme of the Bible is? The theme of the Bible is about grace. It's about a gracious God who sends his son Jesus to redeem sinners like me. It's about one good person, one hero. His name is Jesus, and it's not me. Friends, if we moralize the Bible, then you have lost the meaning of the Bible. Even if you memorize this verse, this chapter, this book, this entire book, if you don't love Jesus, if you don't understand that it's all about him, you don't get any of it. You have to interpret the Bible Christologically. That's the second quote I put on the front of your bulletins from Robert Murray McShane. When you are reading a book in a dark room and find it difficult, you take it to a window to get more light. So take your Bible to Christ. Interpret it Christologically. Now, let me give you another example when thinking about if the Bible is culturally regressive that Tim Keller used. He says, don't allow your God to be a Stepford God. What does he mean by Stepford God? You may have read the book or seen either of the two movies. And it's where husbands get together and they insert microchips into their wives so that they will never, ever disagree with them. And what they find out in the movies and in the books is that that's not a real relationship. Because it's mechanical. It's more like a robot. It's artificial. It's not personal. You see, if the Bible really was the revelation of God, and therefore it wasn't the product of any one culture, wouldn't it contradict every culture at some point? Wouldn't it have to contradict you at some point? Therefore, if it's really from God, it would have to offend your cultural sensibilities. It transcends culture. And think about even what you thought 10 years ago and how you think differently or what your parents thought and now what you think. Culture is constantly shifting, but the Word of God is not. You see, you can trust the Bible culturally because the Bible doesn't always mean what you think it does, and you must understand it Christologically. In conclusion, look at the last few verses. What was their response? Their hearts did what? It burned within them, and they didn't want Jesus to leave. You see, when you understand the Word of God and you know it's all about Jesus, you have a personal, life-changing encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And you need to know this. These are not merely intellectual questions that we are considering and unbelievable. We all suffer. We talked about that last week. But this question about this book is just as personal to me. I've based my life on this book. My vocation is on this book. I parent based on this book. I treat my spouse based on this book. It's really important to me. 
You know, that really came home to me a few years after I graduated from college. I was directing uh, a summer camp, and I had the opportunity to travel around the world and to do um, various camps, and sometimes in Muslim closed countries. And in one of these Muslim countries, one evening a 13-year-old little girl brought a translator to me, and she said she wanted to ask me two questions. The first was, how do I become a Christian? Awesome. Easy to answer that. Her second question was this. Now that I've become a Christian, should I tell my parents? Now that might not strike you, but living in that culture, she fully expected that if she were following Jesus, she would be kicked out of her home. At 13 years old, she would lose all of her basic life necessities, shelter, food, clothing, and love from her family. And I let the indigenous leaders answer that question. You know, I base my life on this book. And I can tell you this, if it is not true, then I've done a lot of damage in my life. But if it is true, then God has been pleased to use me to give people perhaps the greatest treasure in their lives. You see, it matters when we bring people to Jesus if we are telling them, if what we are telling them is true. Are we telling the truth? Friends, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, it's not a great symbol, but it's a great hoax. And all of you guys should sleep in on Sunday morning. You already do it. It's 1130. You should sleep longer. (laughs) You should go play golf and watch football because this is pointless if Jesus wasn't historically raised from the dead. But if you are convinced of the truth of the Scripture, it will make you a light. You will share the gospel. If you have settled in your soul and in your mind that this word, that this book is true, then you will also be salt for the culture. You will promote human flourishing. Friends, we have to decide this. Are you going to live by this book even when it breaks your heart? Even when it goes against culture? We have a tremendous legacy at this church, at McLean Presbyterian Church. For over 70 years, men and women have been faithful to this book and they have taught that it is all about Jesus. None of you can see this, but there's a plaque on this pulpit. It says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Friends, we have an amazing legacy. And if McLean Presbyterian Church ceases to believe this book, or to preach that it's about Jesus, then may McLean Presbyterian Church cease to exist itself. It matters. You can take the Bible seriously, and you should, because there is strong evidence to trust it historically, and there's good reason to trust it culturally. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, there are a lot of hard things in this book. There are many things we don't understand, but one thing we are sure about, it's about Jesus. And Lord, we pray that as we see you, as we see our Savior, as the disciples did on the road to Emmaus, we pray that our hearts would burn within us, that we would be confident in the resurrection, confident in the gospel, that we would boldly proclaim it and share it humbly, Not because it's our truth, but because it's your truth. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.